All right, First John chapter 3. Now, just as you stand there, just let me tell you that the theme of First John is about having fellowship with God. We've talked about this, correct? I mean, you've been here or, yeah, read the prologue and you'll see that John invites us into fellowship with the apostolic circle, with the believers. And then he said, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. And the key Johannine term for this fellowship is the term abide. And in the body of the letter, which we're into now, we've gone through a long kind of introduction. In the body of the letter that we're into now, uh, the theme kind of narrows into how we have fellowship with Jesus Christ, how we abide in Christ, so that when he returns, we will stand before him and not be ashamed. That we'll have confidence at his coming, not because we were perfect, no one's perfect, but because we've walked with him. We've had intimate fellowship with him. And, and you know that as we've gotten into the body of the letter, John says one of the ways we walk in fellowship is to, is to keep our eyes where they're supposed to be. Remember last year, we, last week we showed the, uh, Ball, or the Indianapolis Colts coach speech, Chuck Pagano, about living in vision. And so in, in 229 through 33, we looked, we looked at this vision. Just, you'll see it on the screen. Just to remind yourself so you can give us some context that we should see our Father and his righteousness that is in us. See his marvelous love. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Behold it, see it, gaze at it. Keep, keep your eyes on it, which has made us his children. Keep our eyes, see, have a vision for Jesus' return. And the fact that we will be like him someday when he comes back. Whatever's going on now, one day we'll be just like him, Cindy. See him as our hope, and then we will begin to be purified now. Live in vision. And then last week, as John talked about something that's a little more difficult to talk about, the dark side of fellowship, the negative of not having fellowship, is this thing called sin. And we saw three more pieces of the vision. We need to see sin for the evil from hell that it really is and not give it any quarter. We need to see the sinless Jesus who came not just to manage our sin, but to eradicate it. And then finally, do you remember this at the end? Because I will never forget it. We need to see who we really are, one who is born of God, whose new nature literally cannot sin. Remember, we cried out to the point that they heard us outside. We are not sinners. We are not sinners. That is not our identity. We are sons and daughters of God who sometimes get overcome by the flesh and sin. It's a, it seems to be small, but it's a huge visionary piece that if we get this in our daily life, it will help us to walk in fellowship with, with our God, to abide in him, so that when he comes, we will have confidence and not be ashamed when he returns. So today, here we are in First um, John 3, next section, verse 10. In this, John says, the children of God and the children of the devil are made manifest or are revealed, or this is how they display their natures. I'm going to use the urban slang term, this is how they show out. Whoever does righteousness is showing out at the moment that they're not resourced in God. Cindy and I talked about this in a little dialogue last week. Of God means to be resourced in God. It doesn't mean you're not a believer. 
It just means at that point, baby, you ain't ratcheting up to the one who is your true father. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the very beginning, because our Savior gave it to us, that we should love one another, not like Cain, who was of the wicked one, who was resourced by the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? I'll tell you why. Because his works were evil and his brother's works were righteous. That's called envy, by the way. Now, now don't marvel, my brothers, if the world hates you, but I think what he's trying to say is I would be marveling if you and I as brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, hate one another. That should make us astounded. Finally, he says in verse 14, we know that we know down in our spirit, down in our experience that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brothers and we love the sisters. He who doesn't love his brother or love his sister abides, there's that word for fellowship, abides in death. In fact, whoever hates his brother or his sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life literally abiding in him or in her. You may be seated. One thing you have to say about John, he, uh, he doesn't play, does he? <laughs> he just throws down. Let's see if we can figure out what he's saying to us about abiding in Christ so that we might have confidence uh, when Christ returns. First of all, um, on your outlines, I think we try to make this very clear. The first part of verse 10 is what I would call a transition statement. It's a statement that looks back not only to what uh, we talked about last week and what John wrote last week in the previous section, but it's a statement that also looks forward to what we're going to learn in this section. And the two things that we're really trying to get to in this section that John's going to try to get us to is, first of all, how our identity as a righteous child of God gets manifest or displayed or revealed or how it shows out. And secondly, we're going to learn that how or the way that we show out displays who we are presently calling our daddy, child of God, child of the devil. Now, this passage has been used for years and years to try to, in my view, guilt believers, control believers, because that's one of the ways we control one another is through guilt. If I can make you feel guilty enough and insecure enough that I might have some control over you if you trust my words. And so people have used this passage and they basically said, well, it says right here, uh, this is how the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. If, if someone does righteousness, they're obviously a child of the devil on their way to an eternity without Christ. If they do if they do righteousness, they're obviously a child of God. I don't think that's what the text is saying at all. And that's not been what John has been talking about at all. What has he been talking about? Real believers whose issue is not whether they're real believers or not. The issue is whether they are walking in fellowship with God or not. He isn't suddenly switching his theme here. He's on the same track. And so what he's basically saying is this. In fact, let me see if I can use an analogy. Let's say that I was a child who grew up in a home that had a, had a, had a whacked-out father. That father was not good to me, let's say. 
And so eventually my mother got fed up and, and, and tried to work it all out, but it wouldn't get worked out. And so she took him to court and separated and divorced. So I went to live with my mother and down the road, she met a guy who turned out to be a real righteous dude. And he treated me like a real son. In fact, he went to court and adopted me as his son. So I've got my birth daddy who doesn't love me well and treats me poorly. And I've got my adopted father who has literally legally adopted me. So legally, I am now his son. But one day, my daddy wants, my, my adopted daddy that's good to me wants me to do something that quite frankly, in the moment, I just don't feel like doing. And so what I do is I say, well, guess what? I'm packing my suitcase today and I'm going to go for the weekend and live with my, my real daddy, the daddy I came from, the daddy that will let me do just about anything I want to do. Are you catching where this analogy is going? And so there are times, John is saying, when we as believers who have been adopted into the family of God, he chose us, he adopted us, he made us his sons and daughters out of a family where that daddy, the devil in this text, didn't love us at all, hates us, hurts on us, deceives us, tricks us into thinking that what he's giving us is good, but it turns out to be rat poison at the bottom of that milkshake that he said was going to nourish us and make us feel so good. Sometimes when I don't like what my heavenly father has given me that day, I don't like maybe the way his sovereign will is playing out in my life. I don't like the way my relationships are going. I don't like the fact that my heavenly father said no on a particular day. So I just say, well, guess what? I'm going to take my suitcase. And now listen, this is my adopted father right here. You understand? But for that day, I'm going home and taking my cues from the father that I came from that doesn't really love me at all. So in, in that moment, when I'm doing his unrighteousness, I'm showing that in that moment, even though I'm a true child of this father, I have ratcheted up to the resources of this father. So what John is saying is in the moment when I'm doing unrighteousness, I'm showing that even though I'm a child of this father, I am resourced in this father. Just like when I do righteousness, I'm showing that I am of God. I am resourced by this father. Does this make sense? Okay, then, now, if you get that transition statement, now we're launching because he says, number one, powerfully, right out of the gate, in terms of showing out our true identity of righteousness, love is the only way, it is the only way to show out the righteousness of the Father, the righteousness of the Son, and their presence in our lives on this earth. And so John says... Whoever does righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. I think John had in his mind the upper room. I think when John wrote these words, he was thinking of one of the most profound moments of his young life. I think he was thinking of watching Jesus, whom he had come to believe was the Son of God, the Logos of God. In the beginning was the Word, John wrote. And the Word was made flesh, and the Word dwelt among us. He watched the second person of the Trinity take off his clothes. And he watched him put on the servant's towel. And he watched him get down and washed washed the stinking feet of each 
follower of Jesus, and you've heard us talk about this a million times, and that day, I mean, today I wash my feet, put on my clean socks, have my clean shoes. Back in the day, you wash your feet, and in 10 minutes, out on the dirty uh, Israeli roads with little sanitation, your feet were like nasty in spades, nasty. So the lowest servant always got the task of washing those nasty feet in the household. When someone came in, the head of the household would call the lowest of the lowest servants. I've been longer here than you, bro. I, you, you ain't got, I, I was here before you. You washed those nasty feet. No, sir, we weren't really talking about your nasty feet. We were talking about somebody else's nasty feet, but still, he's the one that's going to wash those nasty feet. And so Jesus took on the form of the lowest servant, and he, he took that servant's towel, and he took that basin, and he went around silently washing the feet of even Peter, who was going to deny him, and even Judas, that was going to betray him. And then he wiped off his hands and put his garment back on, and he looked at his 12, and he said, or his 11 by that point, because Judas, Judas had left, and he said, let me just tell you something. This is the most profound thing I'm ever going to say to you. I'm leaving, and you can't come with me. And you're going to stay, and you're going to be my presence on the earth. And if you love one another, as I have loved you, the whole world will know that you're with me. I will have presence on the earth, even though I'm gone, if you, as my followers, will love all the one another's as I have loved you. I, I don't know what you believe or what you've been taught shows out that you are resourced in God as your father at a particular moment, but I can just tell you what the man says. He said it's always the fact that you love one another. Paul says something similar, and you can write this down and look at it later if you want. Romans 13, 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another. Because he who loves another has fulfilled the whole law. Now, it might be important, and this is maybe something else you can write down. Um, well, in fact, it, let me not get ahead. The first point on your bullet is in John's theology, righteousness from this point on is about agape love that we have for one another. In fact, you don't see the word righteousness in 1 John. You see the word righteous once or twice, but the word righteousness as a noun, you don't see it again in John because now, from now on, now get this, from now on, in John's letter, righteousness is always about loving one another because that's the way we show out righteousness. We love one another. And let me give you a definition for this kind of love because in the ancient Greek world, as you know, there were several different kinds of words for different kinds of love. You had eros for erotic love, you have the word storge for the kind of love you'd have for an old shirt that you just can't bring yourself to throw away, even though it's got holes in it and it's out of style, but you have affection for it. That's another Greek word for love. And then you have the word philos, the verb form being phileo, which is brotherly love, which is cool. 
Nothing wrong with brotherly love. I saw a whole lot of it going on yesterday around here. People were working together and just hugging and patting each other on the back and just helping each other out. A brotherly love is a love that gives and takes. So in brotherly love, you do something for me and I do something for you. And by the way, those who do not know Jesus Christ are really good at eros. Not necessarily because they don't know Jesus Christ, but you get what I'm saying. It doesn't take anything supernatural to be good at eros. It just needs the ability to be sexually attracted to someone. They're good at storge. They're good at philos. But put the definition for agape up. This, what we're talking about here, my brothers and sisters, takes a whole not, It takes something from another world. This is what agape love, this particular Greek word, which, by the way, the ancient Greeks did not like this word because it had nothing to do with self. In Greek culture, have you ever seen the statues? You know, looking something like this. This is what agape means. It's when we make a decision. It's always a choice. You may feel it, you may not. Philos, you feel. Agape, it's optional. It's a decision to act. Talk is cheap with agape. Agape is always about something we do. It's, it's tangible. It's not just, I love you. It's, show me the money. It's tangible. It always costs. It's sacrificial. But God commended his agape love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. It cost him his life. You know, in John 13, you've got the picture on one, on one side. You've got the picture of Jesus watching these stinking feet. And on the other side, you have Jesus, after the upper room discourse, you've got him on the cross. You've got two pictures. You've got this Oreo cookie sandwiching these words. You've got lowest task of the servant. Cost him his dignity. Cost him cleanliness. Cost him his nostrils. Cost him his station. And then he gave up his life on the cross. It's like Jesus said these words. You've got to put shoe leather on these words. It's always about acting sacrificially. It always costs. Philos doesn't really cost. If I, if I take Damon to the ball game and I buy him the ticket and he buys me the hot dog, it hasn't, I, it's a wash, you see. One more second. Let me get through this definition. Then I want to hear what you have to say. In behalf of another, it's always about the other person. It's not about you. That's a hard one, isn't it? Because I grew up in America. I'm an American. What do you mean it's not about me? Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, man. Bill of Rights. You ever heard of the Bill of Rights? I got rights. In the kingdom of God, this is our right to love one another, to show out the righteousness that comes from another world, that there's nothing like it in this world. It only happens when we access the power of another world. It's the way we show out. Whether they deserve it or not, and by the way, when agape kicks in, if you've still got somebody deserving it, guess what kind of love you have for them? Philos, phileo, because they deserve it. The minute they don't deserve it anymore, you got agape or you got nothing. You got agape or you've got nothing.
it's very interesting to me that John doesn't say we show out our righteousness by just doing some good stuff. <coughs> Have you ever wondered about the fact that, you know, if you know non-believers, I know we all know non-believers, good folk, right? Some of them are really good folk. How many of you know some really good folk that are non-believers? Awesome. They're good folks. They might go down to the Capuchin kitchen on Thanksgiving, serve a Thanksgiving Day dinner, give up part of their day. That's pretty cool, don't you think? They might, you know, write a check to, I don't know, the, the hurricane relief. Altruistic, disciplined, non-believers can do all kinds of good stuff. But I want to tell you, I don't know anybody that can do agape without the power of God. I don't know anybody. It's amazing to me that John chooses not only the one thing that we're all looking for. Can I tell you what everybody is looking for? Everybody on the planet, everyone, no matter what your culture, no matter what your... Um, pedigree, no matter what your gender, no matter what your ethnicity, I will promise you there's one common ground. Man, when we go to your way, I will tell you there's a universal language. I don't speak much Spanish after hola. I'm, it's all downhill after that. <laughs> but I'll tell you, they know what love is. Remember Forrest Gump? Remember the famous line in Forrest Gump? But he's trying to get Jenny to see that, you know, she was running around with these yo-yos because she had been so unloved as a little girl. Remember that? She didn't know what love was. Sometimes there's not enough rocks. Remember that moment, you know? So she just, she hung out with losers, God love them, because she didn't know that she really deserved love. And she just was like, Forrest, you know, and he goes, Jen, nay. No, I won't even try. I won't try. I, won't try. <laughs> I was going for a hot second, but I'm not going there. No, no, it's not happening. No, this is being recorded. No, it's not happening. But re remember when he said, I know what love is. In other words, Jenny, I may not be as smart as you, and I may not have the musical skills you have, and there might be some things about me that you don't connect with, but I can tell you I know what you're looking for because I was there when you threw those rocks at that house where your father abused you. I've watched you. You torture yourself out of your emptiness. What I know that you need is, you need love. And I know what love is. So he chose, Jesus chose, and John is telling us the one thing that everybody needs, and number two, the one thing that nobody can do without the power of the gospel. Matthew 5, man, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who despitefully use you, and you will be mature sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. And then he goes on to say, look, loving those who love you, man, even the tax collectors do that. What is that to you? If you love like this, man, you're getting love from another world. Love as I have loved. Can't give away what you haven't received. Why have we spent the whole year talking about the love of the Father, because we, the very thing we must do if we're to show out the righteousness of God into the unrighteousness is the very thing we cannot do if we're not receiving the love because we don't have it in us to give. We've got philos, we've got eros, we've got storge, we do not have agape. Only. Agape only comes from
Well, Damon says, how would a godless culture like the Greeks come up with a word like agape? In terms of the etymology of the, etern- of the term, I don't really know. All I know is it was there. It was there in ancient classical Greek. I only know is what I know is they didn't use it much. Christianity uh, came on the scene, and we, and we saw what Jesus did. You know what we did? You know what our people did? We go, that's our word right there. Can't have it. And they took agape, and now agape is the chief word of the New Testament. So you've heard me tell this story before, and I've got to move on, but um, Philip Yancey tells a story about a Hindu scholar who said, Philip, in Hinduism, we can reproduce any miracle in Christianity except one. And Philip gave the answer that all of us would give, the resurrection, right? You know, he had a little smile on his face, like, can't do the resurrection. He goes, no, we can do that. And if you look at the historiography or you might say the mythology, depending on your perspective of the Hindu culture, you have gods like Krishna and others who would claim to be about resurrection story. This is what the brother said. The only thing we can't do, the only thing we can't do is Galatians 3, 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither male nor female. There's neither slave nor free. We are all one in Christ, he said. We don't know anything about that. Our, our culture, our religion is about 5,000 different castes and divisions. He said we don't know anything about that kind of love that brings people together. And then he said this, if we ever saw it, we would know that the true God was in the house. What do you know? That's exactly what Jesus said. And that's exactly what John is saying to us. Number two. Then he gives an illustration, and he says, this is the way not to do it. Not like Cain and Abel, or Cain with Abel. He he repeats a story from Genesis 4. And by the way, can you see this? I want you to hear this. For those of us who are still like, this passage is trying to prove whether we're really believers or not. Isn't it interesting that he chose the story of Cain and Abel? Was one of the brothers a real brother and the other one just thought he was a brother but wasn't? Both real brothers. One, in fact, can you conclusively tell me that Cain, in those early days, Adam and Eve had just been kicked out of the garden. We don't know how long it was in in terms of history, but... Can anybody prove to me conclusively today that Cain wasn't a believer in the true God? In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to say without further definitive proof, Cain was a living... And John, I think, is pulling him into this situation because he illustrates us talking to real believers who sometimes get so whacked out about who their real daddy is that they ratchet up and get resourced by the wrong one. I think that's what Cain is an illustration of. And so, you could write this down if you wish. Cain obviously didn't love his brother. He hated him. Now, you and I are not going to be comfortable with this. And we alluded to this a few weeks ago, but John brings it back. So let me see if I can make this clear. If I said to you, if you don't love someone, agape style, then what's an alternative? And I would think we might say something like, well, heavy dislike might be an alternative, right? How many would say something like heavy dislike or they irritate me? 
But it's interesting, that is not what John says. Because, see, this agape is not about feelings at all. If you were in the feeling realm, you could get into the like, don't like, I like him sometimes, sometimes I don't like him. And you can get into that if you're into the feeling realm. But agape is not about that. It's about a decision we make to act sacrificially in behalf of another, whether they deserve it or not. We get it from God's love flowing through us. It's not anything to do with how we feel at the moment. It's about surrender. It's about obedience. It's about being resourced in the God who has enough power to pour his righteous love through us in the midst of unrighteousness. That's what it's about. So this whole thing about, well, I just don't like him, John's saying, I'm not having any of that. In fact, the next verse he says, by the way, don't be surprised when the world hates you. He never really mentioned that Cain hated Abel, but when he mentions, hey, don't be surprised if the world hates you, what's he implying? Do be surprised when a brother who's loved by God hates a brother or a sister who's loved by God hates a sister. Be surprised there. And I think he probably would agree with me when I say what he was trying to intend to say was, like Cain hated Abel. And by the way, this hatred led to murder. There's no middle ground. And I want us to take a breath just for a minute, and I want to show you a clip. And I'm hesitant to show you this clip. I've showed it to you before. But let me say one more thing, then I'm going to show you this clip. This is the second thing under number two. Cain's hatred is rooted in envy. His works were evil. His brothers were righteous. He was envious of his brother's works, what he did. And his brother was about... Um, Cain brought an offering that, that God said, not, that's not the one I want. It wasn't, it wasn't rocket science. And so he saw that his brother brought the offering that God wanted, and he saw God's approval on his brother, and he was envious. And so he hated him, and he murdered him. Um, this clip I want to show you is, is from the Lord of the Rings, and it's about, it's about envy. It's about the precious. And, and I, I, hesitate. I know so many of us struggle with our self-esteem, and this is a tough clip if you're really looking at your own journey and how do I feel about myself and does God love me and where am I? But what I want you to catch from this is the battle inside Gollum, Smeagol, with these two sides to himself. And for those of you who didn't see the movie, this is, you're going to see this, these two beings. They look like they're brothers, but they're really the same person, and they're talking to one another inside. And I want you to notice how the bad Smeagol, whose name is Golem, calls out the reality of what Smeagol did because of the precious and because of envy. So watch the clip. Master is my friend. 
You don't have any friends. Nobody likes you. Not listening. Not listening. You're a liar. And a thief. No. Go away! Go away! <laughs> I hate you. I hate you. Where would you be without me? Ellen, well, I saved us. It was me. We survived because of me. himself, looks at himself and says, murderer. You see, honestly, what I think we've done with this passage over the years is we've said, well, this is about false believers. These guys aren't even really true believers, so that's why they're murderers. You know what, you know what the brothers say? When we don't love, we hate. And when we hate, especially when we begin to envy, we are on our way to being a murderer. I was thinking about David. Would anybody, you might say Cain wasn't a real believer. Anybody think that David wasn't a real believer when he was on that rooftop? And what, what was happening when he looked down? He was envy, lusting and envy, is it a form of envy? And what did the envy lead to with her husband? Murder. And I, I got to say, I was thinking about my own journey this week. I'm, I'm, I, I, I don't like to admit this to you, but I think if I don't admit this to you, then maybe we won't have courage to admit it to ourselves. You know, ministry is a very competitive business. It's not supposed to be a business at all, but it, it, it is, it's competitive. In the early church, you went into a community, you have... You have one church. There's no competition for believers. If you're a believer, you fellowship with the only church that is there. It's not the way it is these days. Have you noticed? 40,000 denominations and churches on every street corner and all competing for believers and non-believers. And you get to be my age. Um, I've got very, very close friends in ministry, and some of them are very successful in very many ways. It's just so embarrassing to admit. It's so embarrassing to admit. But I've got two choices, and these are my only two choices. Either I 
make a decision to act sacrificially in behalf of my brothers and sisters in ministry with all of their accolades or all of their book signings or all of their TV appearances or all of their whatever it is that sometimes I want. Either I choose to love them or I begin to despise them. And I'll be at a retreat with them. Some of my closest brothers, I'll be at a retreat with them. And I'll be sitting there and we'll be like, you know, having a cup of coffee and reminiscing. And inside my heart, I'm like, I can't even hardly be with them. It's not like, well, I'm just mildly irritated. I'm telling you, this is true of me. And I think one of the first steps to being able to love well is to admit that if we don't love well, there's not like this, this slope where we can kind of catch ourselves and go back at any point. It's like if I'm not loving well, I'm on my way to hating. I'm on my way to in some way murdering that person that I'm envying because I want what they've got. And I might be real smooth about it. I might have a good air about me and I might still, you know, shake your hand and do whatever it is that makes you think that I still like you. But inside, man, I have begun to resent you because of my envy. In a sense, I I have begun to, you see my fingers? You know what we're talking about? I have begun to murder you. You have begun to be not existent for me in the way you, I've begun to kill your presence in my life. Can you get now a couple weeks ago why John at the beginning of this abiding in Christ says, behold the love of the Father that has been given unto us. Because, my brothers and sisters, if we don't behold and drink in the love of the Father that has been given unto us, there is no chance that we're going to be able to love well the brothers and sisters around us whose lives are going to compel us toward envy and hatred and eventually murder. And if you think the 40,000 denominations, and you've heard me say it before, but I want to say it again in this context. If you think that all of those divisions were about just stellar doctrinal points that were about holding on to orthodoxy, I'm going to tell you, this is what most of them were about. Envy that led to hatred, that led to murder. You are not existent to me anymore. You go there, we'll go here, we'll incorporate under a new label, we'll say it's God, but it's not God because at the moment we do that, we are resourced in our former father. His name is the devil. That's why there's 40,000 denominations, because we have refused to love. Number three. So here it is, and this is it, 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 it closes quickly. Lover versus hater. First bullet, if we don't love, we're a hater. And if we're a hater, we're a murderer. 
And, and can I just say this? You know who understands this passage? Our non-believing friends. We'd look at this and go, well, you know, I don't know. I'm not really a hater. I don't know. I'm just, sometimes Johnny, he just, I don't know if I can go to church with him anymore because he just drives me nuts. The world knows. The world knows. And can I say this without you being offended like I'm, I'm talking down or I'm calling you something? Can I just say this? The world knows what we're not courageous enough to admit. The world knows that we have a God who loves us with a God, and we're a bunch of haters. We're a bunch of haters. Honestly, honestly, how many times do we have to go through this? Not us. We're like having a coffee table discussion here, but at some point the church broad has got to own this, that we have this evangelism industry and we're like, we're trying to convince all these non-believers to get with us and to believe what we believe. And we've got all these apologetic courses about how we can convince non-believers that if they would just get their minds right, they could... And that isn't... What He didn't say the way we show out the righteousness of God is by getting all of our doctrinal ducks in a row. That's not what the brother said. It's not what Jesus of Nazareth said. He said the way we show out and compel folk to come to Jesus Christ is by loving one another. Because remember, that's what they all want. And when they see it, I'm telling you, Jesus said, they'll come. They're not coming because they don't see it. We can't admit it, but they know it. We say we're lovers, but they know. Broadly speaking, the body of Christ is a bunch of haters. And again, you understand, I'm not talking about you individually. You, it's just the word of God. We've got to take it in. I, I just admitted there's moments when I've been a hater in the last six months. I don't want to be a hater. I want to take in the love of the Father that will help me love so that people will see that love and come to Christ. And then the last bullet, if we love, this is so deep, we will experience eternal life. If we hate, we will experience death. This is what he's saying when he says, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love one another. Now, do you guys, do we get it? There's two kinds of knowing. I know and I know. And in this passage, you notice in verse 14 and 15, what's the key word? The word abide. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. It's the fellowship term. It's about what we are living in. In fact, this is a little graphic that might help us. Matt, you can put up the... All all right, look at this. Look at the screen. Do we get this? All believers possess eternal life. We possess it. We have it. 1 John 5, which we'll look at in a few weeks, says we can know that we have it. We can know that we have it. In our minds, because the Father gives us his testimony that he who believes in the Son has life. Do you know that you have it? If you believe in Jesus, God says it's true. If you believe in Jesus, you have it. You know it. 
John's not talking about that kind of knowledge here. He's talking about the kind of knowledge that knows it deeply in the experience that we're living in, what we're abiding in, what we're swimming in. And he's saying that if we love at the moment that we are loving, he says, you are swimming in eternal life. It's not just in your brain. It's saturating every piece of your being. You are literally swallowed up by, overwhelmed by, drinking in life eternal. You are abiding in it, but if you're a hater, at the moment that you're hating, you'd be swimming in death. We're going to Uruguay, Carl and I with the team, and the last time we were there, and she had been there another time and fell in love with a group of human beings, and when we drove up on the work site, and Carla saw her friends, Giselle and Gabriella. I've known this woman for a long piece. I thought somebody had rigged the van we were in with electric thunderbolts. <laughs> because in all my years of being married to her, I had never seen her. She scared the crud out of me. She, she jumped, she screamed, she jumped out the seat crawled over two or three human beings. They, they may still be there in the street, Carla. I don't know. <laughs> Ran out, and literally, this woman who is, you know, I'm an E, extrovert. She's an I, tends to be an introvert. Are you kidding me? This woman and her introverted self busted out in, in an extroverted experience of life eternal because of the love that she was feeling. I'll never forget it as long as I live. sometimes it's even more profound than that. A nurse told me a story the other day at a conference I was at about a woman who had had an abortion and she had gone into a period of self-hatred. You know, sometimes the hater is not about someone else. My brothers and sisters, you understand this, don't you? Sometimes we hate ourselves precious sons and daughters of God. We, when we're not tapped in, when we're not grieving our losses and healing, we hate ourselves. This woman hated herself, and she was experiencing a living death. She even got cancer. Some folks gathered around her and did some inner healing prayer with her. taking her back to the time of the abortion and talking to her about where the Lord Jesus, who loves her, might have been when this, this thing was going down. You've you got to stay with this. In the inner healing prayer, the Lord Jesus came and brought the baby back to her in her mind, gave her her child, in her spirit, I think they might have even named it, and then told her she's forgiven, and that he has this baby, and she can stop hating herself, because behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that he would call us children of God. And she received the Father. She was already a believer, but self-hatred, because we can be Cain. She, brought, she drank in the love of the Father that day, and in six months, 
her cancer was gone. I'm not saying it always goes down like that. I'm just saying if we're haters... In fact, for some of us today, it may not be overt, but inside the hatred, my brothers and sisters, today would be the day to start abiding in Christ again. Confess it. Say, that's what it is. I just said it was kind of like irritate. It's If it's not love, we're haters, and you're experiencing death. God's desire for you is you experience, I mean like experience, eternal.